What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On this episode of the podcast, we're joined by author and expert on the animal kingdom, Ashley Ward, to discuss the fascinating findings of his new book, Sensational, a new story of our senses. Aristotle said that there were five senses, but scientific research suggests that it could be many more than that, with some studies claiming that there are up to 52. Ashley Ward is Professor in Animal Behaviour at the University of Sydney, and his new book further illuminates the often mysterious world of our senses and the mechanisms at the heart of how animals use them to see the world in full. Ashley was joined in discussion by zoologist and broadcaster Lucy Cook. Let's go now to Lucy to hear more. Ashley, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Hi, Lucy. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. I have to say, first off, I absolutely loved the book. It was just full of so many fascinating facts. I kind of like wanted to bother people the whole time, complete strangers, telling them <laughs> snippets as I was reading it. Um, but I'm going to kick off with a really stark statement that you start the book with, which is that the greater the resemblance, the more effort the fathers put into raising the children. Can you explain to us why you, why you say that? Isn't that an extraordinary finding? I mean, honestly, that was one of the ones that really knocked me sideways. So I guess the point of that is that obviously mothers can be fairly sure that the child is theirs. And fathers can be fairly sure, but not quite as sure. And so there's this idea that the more a child or a baby resembles its father, the more effort that uh, that particular individual puts into his child. And this has been studied cross-culturally across several different countries. And across so many of them, the findings have been clear that this is indeed the case. The more a, a child resembles the father, the more effort the, the father puts in. Now, the, the evolutionary explanation of that, of course, is that the father should invest most where his genes are you know, um, involved. So I guess that's what it's all about. But it's, I don't know, we, we tend to sometimes think as, as, as people that we've escaped the evolutionary race in some respect, but findings like this suggest that we're, we really are just the same as any other animal. Well, I tell you, the animal that I quite wanted to be when I was uh, reading the book was the mantis shrimp. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> 
because as you can see, I'm, I'm conducting this interview wearing a pair of glasses. Um, and so I'm always envious of, uh, of animals with extraordinary vision. And the mantis shrimp, shrimp is truly one of those. Tell me, tell me why it has probably the best vision in the world. It has extraordinary abilities when it comes to vision. So it can see, it has multiple sensors for registering colour. Now, we can't be exactly sure what that means. We can't say, for instance, that they can definitely see colors that we can't imagine. But what we can say is that it can see uh, a greater range of the spectrum that we can see. So that's one thing. That in itself is impressive. But I think really what's most impressive, to me at least, about the mantis shrimp's visual capabilities is that it's the only animal that can see both kinds of polarized light. So there's kind of essentially linear polarized light and circular polarized light. And the mantis shrimp can see them both. Now, to us, animals who can't see polarized light, that may seem like a bit of a, huh? a sort of a shrug moment almost. But what polarized light does is it enables the animal to see contrast better, we think, um, so far as we can tell. Because, of course, what we're doing here is, is going beyond our own visual abilities and relying on computers to tell us what it might look like. But it, it seems that um, this improves contrast detection and may even allow a kind of different sensory, visual sensory channel for them to communicate between themselves with. And it's one of those strange things, that those moments of serendipity in science, where researchers have looked at a particular animal that, although fascinating, seem to offer relatively little that could improve our lives. And yet, a little work on, well, I say a little, a lot of work on this animal um, has yielded all kinds of amazing advances and ideas for us to use in remote sensing, for instance, um, from satellite vision and things like that. So we can use this incredible enriching study of this particular animal to help help us. What the world looks like to a mantis shrimp, we can we can try and replicate it, but we think it is possibly the animal with the best vision in the entire animal kingdom. It's an extraordinary thing. Yeah, and I guess in a way, we don't really know what we're missing because we can't see polarised light. And I, and I thought that that was really kind of one of the fascinating things. So I'm fascinated by bias. And that's one of those things, if you're studying the senses, is like, how do you step outside of our, our very biased realm? Because Aristotle was wrong, wasn't he? There, there aren't just five senses. Well, he was wrong, but he gets misquoted on this. This was essentially um, part of a much longer thesis that he made. And, you know, we can readily identify with the five main senses that, that we have. They, they aren't, it's not an exhaustive list. And in that sense, Aristotle was wrong to say that there are five senses, just like he was wrong to say that bees don't have ears because he couldn't see uh, earlobes outside of a bee. But he was making some really incredible findings that were way ahead of his time. Um, and, and I think he, he really does get punished a little bit too much for that. That said, um, we are coming to a realization that there are not just five or, or six, but many, many more than that. Things that we have that we, we underappreciate, such as our sense of balance. You know, we, we, don't, we don't put that on anything like the same platform as perhaps our vision or our hearing, but try living without it. Uh, and then there are other senses that other animals have that we don't have. And then I think incredibly importantly is the way that all of these link up. Now, going back to your original point, Lucy, so talking about bias, um, I mean, that is one of the most fascinating things. I have to say that right across all of the senses that we've studied, especially, especially the big five, as we might call them, 
women are either a little bit or streets ahead in all of them, actually. And that, I think, is particularly interesting. You know, if you want to, if you want to know, know, have, have a colour described properly, then ask a woman. If you want to know what something smells like, probably ask a woman again. And again, if, something, if, you, if you're interested in, in how something feels, then, then you may have to ask them too. I definitely warmed to the discovery that women are sort of <laughs> sensorily superior, one might say, to uh, to men folk, and, uh, and 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 certainly that that you know there's lots of explanations for that. Uh, why certainly with 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 colours? Um, just could you just talk to me about the the, the colour one for an example of the, the different explanations for that? Because I thought that was really interesting. Because it's very easy with to put sort of evolutionary just so stories onto these, but actually when you unpick it, there's lots of potential reasons why why females may um, see colors better than males exactly so look what happens when we look at the evolutionary history of our species we inevitably end up retrofitting the facts to fit um, the circumstance or you know our findings and a popular theory um, which i have no way of gainsaying is that um, back in our sort of hunter-gathering days um, it was largely the women who would do the gathering and the men who would do the hunting and that meant often perhaps that the females will be gathering fruit and to assess the ripeness of a particular fruit, then they would need to have a particularly acute color sense. So they would pick the fruit at exactly the right time for maximum nutrition. Whereas the men were primarily involved in the hunting aspect of it. And actually one point does come across to, to kind of support this evolutionary argument, which is that there's just one tiny corner of the sensory world in which men outperform women. And that is broadly speaking in motion detection. Um, slight changes in the visual field, men are sometimes slightly better at detecting very slight changes in movement, which would accord with the idea of them perhaps spotting a, a prey animal running away. Now, that does sound like a persuasive argument, you know, the, the bifurcation of the sexes into uh, hunters and to gatherers. And, and, you know, that's an interesting thesis. And like I say, I've got no way of gainsaying it, but we don't know for sure that that's the right answer. But there is another interesting thing which is that a small but reasonable proportion of women have a fourth color cone. Uh, it's very, very close to the red cone. But that means that instead of triangulating all the colors they see and assessing it on the basis of three cones, like just about, well, mo most men and, uh, and the majority also of women do, they have a fourth cone, which improves the acuity of their color detection. And so that's something you get, far as I know, exclusively in women. So... Um, that also plays in as well, which is it may may possibly be related to the the hunter gatherer kind of explanation, but it's um, it's it's a mechanistic explanation. I think it's fascinating in its own right. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I didn't I didn't know that mechanistic uh, explanation, um, and of course, you know, colours elicit different emotions in us, don't they? And and uh, this was fascinating. Is is that something that's innate or or learned? Tell me about that. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great question, and it's very, very difficult. I mean, were we to be perhaps less moral creatures, then perhaps we could experiment with babies from birth and, and do all the kinds of controlled experiments we'd need to do to answer the question properly. But it's certainly true that um, certain colors have a stronger emotional impact on us than others. Red, for instance, is a common uh, warning sign in nature, and, and it seems to affect us even in our modern lives. So when we see red, you know, we use red for stop signs and for all sorts of emergency signs, things like that. Red does seem to stand out to us and prime us for action in a way that uh, perhaps other colors don't. 
Blue, by contrast, is somewhat a calming color. And it's actually, strangely enough, the, the favorite color of um, people across just about every culture who's ever been asked what their favorite color is as well. So blue we do warm to, almost paradoxically, because we think of it also as a cold color, but there you go. In terms of your question, though, you know, is this innate or is it something that we, we learn? There's a suggestion based on testing children before they develop language, before they've had a chance to be... I guess, schooled by other generations, that red has a certain salience to them which continues into later life. So it does look as though this is something we're born with, that something is, that is potentially innate. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it makes me wonder, when it came to choosing the, the colours for your book cover, so what, what colour? <laughs> tell, tell the listeners if they don't know so they can spot it more easily in the bookshop. But what colour is, is the book cover? And did you, was that a tactical decision? Well, um, I would love to claim credit for it because I think the co the cover of the book is a beautiful thing, but it was um, almost nothing to do with me. They presented me with these drawings and I just thought they were gorgeous and done by a, a person with far more talent than me. Uh, and she's done this wonderful design, uh, which is basically a navy blue with, with all kinds of sense organs and, and different animals that appear in the book. I mean, the book is mainly about humans, but we I, I refer to to animals extensively um, as a means of sort of seeing where we, we sit within the pantheon of different animals. And it really is a, is a, is a gorgeous thing. Yeah, I mean, I was I was particularly um, interested because it did talk a lot about humans. And there's been quite a lot of books recently that have that have covered the the animal animal sensory world very comprehensively so for me the thing that I found really interesting about your book was that it, it was it was um you know largely looking at the human experience with reference to the animal world and uh, one of the things that you talk about which is which is a visual thing is is uh, is our concept of beauty and what as humans we, we we find beautiful so tell me a little bit about that it's a bit of a minefield of course because I could be drawn into a debate about whether certain people are beautiful or, or you, you know, and and of course you could get any two people and they will never agree necessarily on, on what is and what isn't beautiful. And, and indeed philosophers have been arguing about this for centuries, millennia in fact. And there is a lot to be said for the phrase beauty's in the eye of the beholder. And yet there's some really interesting research on on this. If we're talking about people, for instance, we tend to find that if you I remember walking around an art gallery in Sydney some years ago where they'd taken um, pictures of the people who'd gone into the gallery and then made a composite, uh, basically an average face of all those people who'd gone in. And the amazing thing was that although this represented multiple different people from multiple different um, cultures and races and both sexes and you know all kinds of genders, the face that came out was incredibly beautiful. And that actually has what is, is roughly what has been found in scientific studies of this. So if we take, for instance, 100 male faces and then average them and ask heterosexual, a heterosexual woman, for instance, which she, which she finds most um, attractive, let's say, she'll tend to pick the composite image over any of the individual males that went in to make that image. Now, the other thing, I guess, with this is if you flip that around and look at a composite female face, the same happens. But the interesting thing is that both men and women tend to find a female face more attractive than a male face. This isn't necessarily a thing about sexual orientation. It just is 
it seems to be that to a human eye, the female face is a more attractive face, which personally I wouldn't disagree with. But it, it's interesting that it is so strongly felt. It's just such an interesting topic. I mean, there is danger in, in, as, in ascribing somebody value based on some kind of subjective assessment of, the, of their attractiveness. But it does seem to be something that we do, even if it's self-conscious. And in fact, there have been some really quite, I, I guess to a modern perspective, kind of shocking research into this that doesn't really happen so much anymore, which I think probably is a good thing. But people were assess, asked to assess personalities of individuals based on photographs that were furnished of those individuals. And even when you give people basically an, an identical kind of CV or resume, but with different um, pictures on there, they tend to warm most and to judge more favorably the people who are better looking, even though there is no other aspect of their personality because they, the people are assessing on the same CV. So yeah, it's it's called the beauty is good phenomenon. And unfortunately, it does seem to be deeply ingrained within our species that we see somebody who is noticeably good looking, and we think they're a better person for it. And And it's, you know, it's, that's a bit challenging. But I think recognizing that, and being aware of it is at least a step that we can make for those of us such as myself who aren't so good looking. We can fight <laughs> on, a, on a more even field. Yes. I, yes. I mean, it does seem like it's potentially something of a flaw for us to sort of have this overvaluation of, of, of beauty, you know. Um, Absolutely. It, it, it doesn't really seem like it's particularly advantageous um, and possibly might be the... Uh, <laughs> the decline of our species, the great flaw of our species, potentially. No, I completely uh, agree with you. I mean, th there are, again, evolutionary explanations for it, which suggest, you know, that perhaps people are looking for um, better genes, let's say, for, for a, a potential offspring. But again, I think I think we're reaching a little bit if we were to put it entirely down to that. There, there just does seem to be some kind of glitch in the matrix there, I think. And then moving from things that we find attractive to things that we find deeply unattractive so talking about a glitch in the matrix i am one of those people i think in the book i discovered something like 20 percent of people that really can't tolerate certain sounds like I, I if i have someone chewing loudly near me i i just i, I it just enrages me and i'm delighted to discover, to discover after reading your book that i am not alone and that, that you know this this uh this is a natural thing so t tell me about what's wrong with me ashley <laughs> nothing is wrong with you that's that's the good news um and there's a, a a reasonably high proportion of the population who are what's known as mesophonics um which describes a condition whereby a peripheral noise isn't merely you know, kind of background annoying, but actually goes right to the heart of your um, anxiety and anger responses and triggers something which is, to those people who aren't affected by it, a response which seems disproportionate. But it's really not a conscious thing. It, it's, I mean, if you take, for example, a scream, we are pre-programmed to respond very strongly to that. High-pitched noises, they demand and get our attention. But it seems that in these um, these people with this particular condition, perhaps yourself, Lucy, that it isn't merely that, but it's a specific range of sounds that seems to have some commonality. So high-pitched noises, it might be a scream, or it might be something which roughly in a sonic auditory sense in some way mimics a scream. So anything that's really high-pitched, you might think of you know, a knife going across a plate, which which just sends shivers down my spine. But again, it's that high-pitched thing, and... and you know, that does seem to tap into the same response that we get from a scream. Think so, things like that. But on the other hand, 
you know, various, <laughs> various wonderful studies have been done on this and, and various kind of uh, questionnaire type approaches have been taken. And across the board, people seem to be, or, or seem to like least, <laughs> and it will come as no surprise, the sound of someone vomiting. Chewing food is roughly in that same ballpark. Really what we're listening to here is we've been made aware by sound of essentially a, a, a mechanism which might potentially spread disease. And so we're, we're taking a step back from that. When we hear somebody chewing where, you know, it potentially brings in our sort of self-defense, our, 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 our desire to, to sort of just separate ourselves just a little bit from a potential source of, of disease. Because, of course, many diseases um, are transmitted between members of the same species. So potentially that could potentially be one explanation. Well, yes. I, 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 I also... The sound of somebody vomiting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's just that's just next level. So, yeah, I mean, that, it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense that we'd want to, to get away from these things. What do you get, the person who has everything? How about time with some of the world's most brilliant minds? Intelligence Squared Plus gift subscriptions at $14.99 per month give access to our entire video library, as well as live-streamed events every week. You can pick the length of the subscription at the checkout, and best of all, there's no delivery time. Visit intelligencesquaredplus.com today, or click the link in our episode description to get yourself a gift subscription for a loved one today. But of course, then there are sounds that we absolutely love. And, and the, you know, the poet Henry Longfellow described music as the universal language of mankind. Could you, could you unpack that for us? Yeah, isn't it interesting? So music is something that really taps into the psyche of many of us. If not all of us, then, then certainly the vast majority. And, and even this finding, um, an archaeological finding of a flute which was made from um, the bones of a bird from thousands and thousands of years ago suggests that even though life was incredibly hard at the dawn of, of human civilization, people still somehow managed to find time to make basic musical instruments. So it's something which has always given us a huge amount of pleasure. And it, ha it would have to be that way for, for people to take the time out to to fashion their own musical instruments. I, I find that fascinating. So it's something about music which really speaks to all of us. That doesn't mean that necessarily we're all interested in the same kind of music. There seems to be a very strong cultural angle to this. So in the book, I talk about um, my own personal musical tastes, which, uh, you know... Are, are Not everybody's. Not everybody's, <laughs> it has to be said. Uh, and, and there are certain kinds of music which really I just can't get my head around, jazz being one of them. Now, the problem must lie with me because I know that an awful lot of people like jazz. And yet I really, it just, I, I just don't like it at all. It's a musical equivalent of chewing for you. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I hear jazz, my heart sinks. I, I, it's, it's wrong of me, I guess, because so many people like it. But there's some, the really interesting research on this suggests that it's just about learning patterns within music. So if you're aware of kind of, if you like, in a very rough sense, the rules that a piece of music is following, then you'll be able to essentially follow that music and get more pleasure out of it. Now, that's partly cultural, so you learn the rules in early in life. doesn't mean you can't learn them later in life, but you learn these rules. And if the music is, in a broad sense, following those rules just occasionally maybe diverting slightly, just to surprise you enough to keep you interested, 
then it gives us this frisson, this feeling of, of, of kind of excitement. We get a, a, a squirt of hormones in our brain to give us a, a, a rush of pleasure. And it seems that, you know, music for so many people fulfills this, this fantastic um, role in our, in our lives. The other interesting thing about music is that if it really is, as Longfellow said, the kind of the universal language of mankind, then what we should be able to do is to take little excerpts of music and play it to people around the globe in different, uh, across different cultures. And for them to be able to recognize, for instance, whether this was a sad piece of music, maybe in a minor key, or a really upbeat uh, piece of music. And remarkably, that was the case. So there does seem to be some basic truth to what Longfellow said um, all those years ago, that we may all be speaking a different language, but certain kinds of music make us all, or just about all of us, feel roughly the same way. And I, th I find that utterly fascinating, I have to say. Yeah, fascinating. And they're lovely, those unifying things, aren't they, really? Things that bring, to, bring us together as a, as, as a species. And, and the idea that there is this sort of unifying music that would, that, would, that would bring us all joy and make us all happy is, is a lovely thing, isn't it? Couldn't agree more. Yeah, we, we we focus a lot in the modern age on the things that differentiate us, that separate us, uh, and we we put people in boxes and other them. But I think really one of the wonderful things about this this book and researching this book has been, you know, the commonality that we have, this sense in which really we may have a somewhat different sensory experience to 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 others around us, but but really the the, the commonalities are, are, are far more compelling and greater than the the differences. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, of the five senses, I suppose, if you think about what could you bear to lose, live without, you know, and there's sort of, we're sort of primarily visually motivated. And so, you know, nobody, you know, relishes the idea of losing their, their, their vision. And I guess sound, music is so important to us, you know, uplifting our spirits and everything. But um, smell, of course, is, is like often is the one that people, in particular, wasn't there, there was a survey of teenagers that said that the teenagers disregarded smell so much that they would rather rather lose them their sense of smell than their mobile phone <laughs> what, tell me tell me why teenagers are so misguided and what they'd be missing out on and why is it that we we sort of you know disregard our sense of smell so much this yeah this is such an interesting story because you know we're used in the west to to think of in terms of a sensory hierarchy where as you say we place sight and hearing right at the top of that scale and smell in that in that hierarchy we've developed is very often found towards the bottom, usually at the bottom. And it's strange actually, because, you know, smell is incredibly important. I've lost just about my sense of smell, which is, I miss it terribly. But the interesting thing about it is that our diminution of the sense of smell has a, has a long history. So during the, uh, the start of the Enlightenment and subsequently, uh, we placed a premium on observation, on direct observation uh, of quantifiable things. Now, you can quantify, to some extent, things that you can see and things that you can hear to a much greater degree than you can quantify things that you can smell. We find it very, very difficult to describe in any really accurate sense what we smell we don't have anything like the same difficulty when it comes to to sight or to hearing and partly that's to do with the number of words that we have in our vo vocabularies to describe visual or auditory things we have very very few words which are exclusively devoted to describing things we smell uh, in the english language so we you know things like musty that's one in a very very small group of of words which really describe a particular smell and even then it's not particularly descriptive and so 
in Enlightenment times and subsequently, a, a number of uh, res researchers, all men, interestingly, have examined smell and found it in some way animalistic or as unimportant to humans. And this, as a result of this kind of work, the idea was born and came into prominence that really we have a minimal sense of smell compared to other animals, that we are rapidly losing it, that it's less important to our lives, and that, you know, it's a retrograde thing, a, a, a something which is of no use to modern humans. But recently, and rather wonderfully, there's been a real reappraisal of this. I, I don't know whether it's got through to the teenagers who were asked about that on their phones, but still, we've begun to really appreciate our sense of smell much, much more. And I think one of the most interesting things is a study done by an excellent researcher, Asifa Majid from um, York University, who, you know, she looked at the vocabularies of people as a means to, de to, I think it's a really neat solution to the question of how you, you work out, you know, which sense is most important. And, and she used this approach of, of looking how many words in a vocabulary are devoted to each of the senses. Now, in English, as in far as I know, just about every European language, we get the same pattern, vision, hearing, plenty of words to describe um, things that are associated with those senses, smell, very, very few. And because so much of science, until relatively recently, was done you know, in Europe and cer or certainly in the West, it became the orthodox idea that really smell just isn't that important. But when people like Asifa Majid came along and looked at other cultures, the whole picture changed. So rather than having this universal hierarchy of the senses where we have vision, hearing, and then tapering right off to, you know, smell trailing in a distant fifth, in other cultures it simply isn't like that. And I find that so interesting. So one study, for instance, looked at uh, Indigenous Australians and found that actually they have loads of words to describe things that they smell, which tends to suggest that you know, in their sensory hierarchy, smell is accorded much more respect. In, I forget exactly which part of Africa, but there was another study which uh, demonstrated that touch formed a very, very strong part of, of their cultural hierarchy of the senses, if you like. And so rather than just testing Westerners and coming up with the idea that we have this particular sensory hierarchy, and that is common to all humankind, once we shed the shackles of, of, of our own sort of self-importance and start looking at other cultures, we find out that there isn't a universal hierarchy of the senses. And that's incredibly important for all kinds of different reasons, not least because we can gradually, I hope, shed this idea that smell isn't important. It's incredibly important. What's happened to your sense of smell? Well, this, it's the saddest thing because I... I, I really miss it now it's gone it was something which like so many people i took for granted and yet it more or less disappeared in an instant so my understanding is as follows and i'm not a, a medic or anything like that but essentially the the processes that go from the olfactory lobe to link up to the olfactory epithelium pass through uh, a piece of bone in your skull called the cribiform plate, which is, I guess, best visualized as almost looking like a cheese grater, like a, a plate of bone, but with holes in it. And the processes go through that. Now, if you get a really severe bang on the head at the wrong angle, basically that just shears those connections or a lot of them. So I got this really bad blow on the head and thereafter it was uh, <laughs> all gone. So um, or nearly all gone. So yeah, it was uh, there one moment and, and gone the next. So yeah, that's that's 
the story of it. Many people, of course, have lost their sense of smell for some duration of time or, or some people for, for, for weeks or even months um, due to COVID. And I think the really instructive thing from that is the fact that, you know, when you lose your sense of smell, it takes that sometimes to really appreciate what you've lost. Absolutely. Maybe that's that will teach those teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really fascinating throughout the book to discover, you know, how the senses are, are, are connected and also how sort of malleable they are and how therefore they do differ culturally, like your culture influences how you interpret the world, how you perceive the world. You know, we are, as you say, that the ab Aboriginal people probably do have a, a richer and more nuanced sense of smell. They've got the language they need to describe those smells and so that they can they can sort of understand that world better. So I, I thought that was fascinating. And I, I wonder whether any of us would ever be able to become as good at, or train our sense of smells sense of smell to be as good as the master perfumers because there are certain people aren't there who are described as as the nose who have a rather extraordinary ability to discern smell can you tell me a little bit about that yeah i, I guess you know these these are people who are have been exercising their noses in a very conscious way for for years and so you know, if, if we use the muscle analogy, they're like the bodybuilders of the smell world. Essentially, we, we may not catch up with them very, very quickly, but we can we can start to approach their level of complexity uh, in terms of their sense of smell. So I, I think potentially it would reward people to, to, you know, just to exercise their sense of smell a little bit more. It offers us a great deal. But some of the really interesting research has, has come when, say, Europeans have been tested for their sense of smell against other cultures from... Um, say South America or parts of Asia, where the sense of smell is, you know, central to their lives, and testing their ability to smell in a comparative sense between those cultures, and the results of that are extraordinary. So we we get these Europeans, you know, who even amongst the best of them are outperformed by a huge proportion of of the people from other cultures, which which isn't a, as far as we know a genetic thing, but is just really. It's it's a use it or lose it thing um, in in some ways. It's just people using their sense of smell, being more conscious of it, and and therefore developing what may seem to us like a superpower. It it really isn't. It's it's a trained thing. And of course, I mean, I wonder whether there's anything to do with that and the fact that um, I, I was rather fascinating to read in your book about how Euro-Japanese relations were somewhat strained by the way that <laughs> <laughs> the way that our diet has made European people smell. Do you want to just tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, it was it was when really the first European traders went to Japan, and the Japanese immediately noticed that they had a very distinctive smell, and that distinctive smell came from the European tendency to consume dairy foods, which made the, Jap the Japanese at the time found absolutely revolting. They developed terminology to describe this. So, you know, they could really distinctively tell the difference between, um, say, themselves, non-dairy eaters at the time, and, and these Europeans who, to them, smelt of stinky cheese. So um, I, I guess that's where that comes from. But it's interesting now, actually, that I just returned from Tokyo, and really many of the people can't get enough cheese. They love it now, so so maybe they've, they've come around to it. <laughs> Everybody smells of stinky cheese now, perhaps. Um, certainly after Christmas, we all do anyway, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> um, moving on from smell then to touch, and, and tell me, why do we interpret touch as being one of the most intimate ways of connecting with, with others? 
Yeah, well, I guess, you know, even even if we're, you know, close to someone, when we're regarding them visually or similarly with hearing or smell, these are all distance senses. You know, these are all senses which involve the detection of, of, of stimuli from, from some degree of distance, whereas touch is immediately, it has to do with contact, of course. So there is so much evidence from the animal kingdom about just how important touch is for them. You know, you, you could, for instance, take primates who spend a quarter to a third of their days just grooming each other. Now, yeah, I guess you could say the reason for that is is to remove ectoparasites, but it goes much deeper than that. Their touch is a means of building and maintaining strong social connections. And sadly, it's something which has been receding in modern life. You know, we, we are for good reason, but nonetheless somewhat regrettably reluctant to touch other people. It's a very tricky thing to negotiate, but you know, people have used this term touch-starved. We look how important it is to our very closest animal relatives, and then we look at how little we do it in comparison, and you've got to think we're missing something. Um, we have these incredible networks um, of sea tactile fibers in our bodies, which register the slow stroke of, of say, a hand or, or, you know, some other thing, I guess a brush or something like that, across our bodies. And it gives us enormous pleasure. We're really built to be touched and to touch. And yet, you know, if you think to the, to the pandemic when we were all separated and isolated in our own different ways, touch really dropped out of our lives. And that has profound implications. We might think of it as something which is relatively simple, perhaps relatively unimportant. And yet the research shows that touching and being touched is fundamentally important to our sense of well-being, our sense of happiness. And our bodies are really built to register this the, the kind of slow caress that we would get from a loved one. It's incredibly important. It's, again, I guess a bit like the sense of smell, something that we really do underestimate in, in, in our modern lives. I know that, yeah, during lockdown, I, I was trapped in a house by myself, just me and my dog. I was so grateful for my dog. Um, but I did, I was dreaming about being, about hugs. I just, I literally, I sort of fantasized about it and I, you know, daydream and, and dream at night about, you know, so yeah, it was, it was, it was very much, very much in, in my mind during that, that period of time. I guess the thing that was the real revelation to me while re reading your book was, you know, as you say, you know, we all think of Aristotle's five senses when we think of our, our, our the way that we perceive the world. But what surprised me and I hadn't really thought about before was that not all senses are perceiving the external world, but there are senses that are monitoring our internal world as well. Um, and I was particularly fascinated about interoception and, and its relation to mental health. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Because that I'd That's never heard so of any interesting. of that stuff I think before. It's yeah, I think it's one of the most interesting and progressive areas of research into the into the senses um, that's that's going on currently. Yeah, and so there's there's a, a, a term called interoceptive sensitivity, which broadly describes our ability to register what's going on in our bodies. Um, it's often tested by asking people to um, in, in, under control conditions to say how fast their heart is beating. Now they can't hold their finger to their wrist to, to actually count it directly it's just whether they have that sufficient connection between mind and body to be able to be aware of let's say of their of their heart rate that isn't all of it that's just a very very common test which is used and the really interesting thing that we find is that the better people are at that particular simple and you'd almost think trivial kind of exercise 
the less likely they are to be suffering from depression or anxiety. People with depression or anxiety tend to either be less connected to their bodies or to misinterpret the connection between their bodies and their minds in, in some important ways. And it's often been said, you know, that, that exercise really helps with mental health, with both depression and anxiety. And what I think is absolutely fascinating is that it may be that exercise is helping to build stronger links between mind and body. And that, I think, offers a really, really important mechanistic explanation of why it is that exercise can help mental health. I think that could be extremely important. Because although, as you say, you know, we, we focused a lot, um, whenever we discuss the senses, we, we focus on the senses that collect information from outside and much less on the senses which are essentially collecting information from within. It might be our level of hunger, it might be our our level of thirst or a heartbeat or our levels of anxiety or what have you. Although we, we categorize them as extraception and interception, they are intrinsically and intimately linked so that our interoceptive selves provide the context in which we interpret the signals that are coming from outside. So, you know, if you've ever been lucky enough to fall in love, you, you know that all the music sounds wonderful, everything smells great, everything looks beautiful. Whereas by contrast, you know, if you're in a funk or, or, or worse still in suffering from depression, you know, things really lose their flavor. I mean, literally, people with depression are much less able to taste things to the same level of keenness. So, you know, we can really gain an awful lot by understanding the links. And, and this is where the most wonderful research is going on at the moment, at the, you know, the interaction, the crossover between interception and extraception to understand and to build links between our, our internal selves and, and, and how we interpret the, the, the outside world. I think that's, that's got so much promise. I could talk to you about this all day, Ashley, but, uh, you know, definitely reading your book made me appreciate the, 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 the realm of my senses so much more broadly and, and, their, and their importance to, to, to every aspect of my life. So thank you so much for that. I, I, I really love the book. I recommend to everybody to, to read it. It's a, it's a fascinating read. And, and it's been a delight to speak to you today, Ashley. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. I really appreciate it. Nice to talk to you, Lucy. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm Bea Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. <laughs>